oftentimes chefs think that creativity or servicing their own ego and the idea of making people happy are concepts in diametric opposition. And I don't believe that. I think the win-win, it's that Venn diagram, it's that little pinpoint where it's, here is a dish that is a representation of myself and my philosophy, and people love the shit out of it. Now it's their new favorite dish. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today's episode is a conversation between Matt and Alex Stupak, the chef at Empeon. Later, we'll be asking Deb Perlman from Smitten Kitchen a question from a listener. Alex Stupak has really made a name for himself in New York making tacos, but I've been to a few of his restaurants, and the most memorable thing I've had is probably the avocado dessert. Did you talk about the avocado? Oh, we sure did. This dish is incredible. It's basically a Meyer lemon avocado parfait, but it happens to look exactly like an avocado sliced in half. It is a visual trick. It is a trick on the on the tongue. Uh, I highly recommend you ordering it. Alex has a pastry background, right? I mean, he knows a lot about desserts. Yeah, he's a legend in the game. I can't believe I just said so much about a single dish, but that really is a good dish. But really, let's talk about tortillas. Alex and I talk about the reason you should ask your local restaurant, your local Mexican restaurant, to buy tortillas, especially if they're making them fresh. They, they're remarkable. You should buy a whole bag of them, and they will gladly sell them to you. They probably do it a lot better than the grocery store. Oh, yeah, those ones in the free, in the fridge section. Yeah, uh, they're kind not, of gummy and cold. Let's not talk about that. But, you know, there's so much pride, you know, given to the process of making these tortillas. And you should just really stock up on them when you have a chance. It's great intel. Here's Matt with Alex Stupak. Alex Dupac, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, I, I was just saying, like, you're like one of my favorite chefs in New York. You you make consistently interesting and delicious food. Two things that sometimes um, are running in, in in different directions with New York City chefs, but you do both. I appreciate that. That yeah, means man. a lot to me. Absolutely. I also am a fan of your Instagram. I think you uh, you both you bring a lot of creative uh, photography and visuals to it, but you also write a lot. Um, you write lengthy in, in in the in the comments section or in the in the description, and I I wanted to actually bring something up which I just loved. And I want you to kind of unpack it a little bit. This quote I'm going to quote you from your Instagram. Okay. There is shelter, and then there is architecture. There are clothes, and then there is fashion. There is eating for sustenance, and then there is dessert. <laughs> I love that. What does that mean to you? I'm glad you love it. Sometimes I know I can sound. Um incredibly pretentious and it's not intentional <laughs> no, it's not I, you... um i i want to like i like thinking about like look at, at, i've been thinking a lot about dessert and why it was a part of my career that i really fell in love with and when you really think about it it is the toy department of food so like yeah. to the point of like food is a, a utilitarian thing. You need to eat to nourish yourself, to not be hungry. The same way you need clothing to be warm. You need a, a roof over your head. So like even though we eat savory food for pleasure, you are hungry when you eat that steak at that awesome steakhouse or whatever. I think there's something beautiful about dessert, and it's the one time that you actually eat solely for pleasure. Yeah, And it's the one time where um, the food itself can almost become an identity piece of you, like your – if you're an iced coffee drinker or you're a, you are a chocolate person and mm -hmm. that's part of you. And there's something also interesting. Like, it's like I have a four-year-old son and it's like 
he knows like going into his birthday like what that cake is to look like yeah you know what i mean that needs to be green and it's a dinosaur and it's this or whatever so i just think it's fascinating at that young of an age like um again i i think it's the art i think mm-hmm. it's the fashion department of the food world where it's mm-hmm. purely for um the awesomeness of it oh yeah and it doesn't have to serve these other purposes of like well is it feeding a vegetarian yeah. is it is is it medium rare or medium well? Like all that sort of goes out the but window. But that said, you can't envision a world without dessert. It's not that inessential, right? No, I, I think it's totally uh, essential. I mean, when we opened, when we opened um, Empeon, our flagship at Five Ten Madison Avenue, I went in there uh, a little upset because our our two prior restaurants. It was the classic example of like, well, desserts sort of sell, not that mm-hmm. well. Let's cut the pastry department. You know, it's like classic. That's why you walk in every Italian restaurant. And it's like, here's your panna cotta, here's your biscotti, here's your sorbet, and here's your gelato. And a lot of them are frozen ahead it, of time. Well, that's it's so you can <laughs> stuff it onto a garmage station yeah, yeah. and completely do away with the entire pastry department. And I was like, I get why restaurants do that, but pastry is really important to me, man. So it's like we had to build it as an integral part in that restaurant to the point where it was an identity piece of the restaurant. Mm-hmm. You're a carbophobe, what, whatever. Mm-hmm. You have to get this avocado dessert. You know, we kind of made that one of the points of the restaurant so we could never back out of pastry departments ever again. Yeah. So even at our new Al Pastor, I mean, it's a bar, but like I was like, we need we need a dessert that this place is known for. People need to eat dessert. It's important to me. So, reader, uh, listener, uh, you will have the description of Alex's, um, you know, life in the in the notes. But Alex, you started your, your career in pastry. And we've just discussed that. But in New York, in the recent future, in the recent past, you you've been known for Mexican cooking. You're you're a Mexican uh, chef. Uh, but I will say this: your new location of El Pastor is slightly different. It's bridging the Middle East with um, other with Mexico, right? Yeah, there, there, there's a whole confluence of elements. The, the Middle Eastern thing came from, and again, starting with Mexican, that was my way of breaking away from what I was doing. I had to break away. I think people, I think people tend to pigeonhole creativity as something that involves liquid nitrogen, hydrocolloids, mm-hmm. or you know, very specific modes of cooking that are sort of. Um, recognized uh, by like things like Michelin and 50 best. And it's like, I, I needed to, I needed to diversify myself. So I began with a cuisine that I loved eating a lot. The Middle Eastern thing kind of snuck in in that again, like right now, I think the, the core of Empeon is perceived as Mexican where I really want the core of it one day to be perceived as um, rebellion and curiosity. Mm-hmm. So Al Pastor, like undisputed king of tacos out of Mexico. Shout out. It's so true. Mexican cu- the best taco hands yeah. down. Mexican cuisine um, is always uh, – all the conversations are always have this um, this strong lilt of tradition, authenticity. Yeah. This is the way it is. And there's, there's a beautiful irony there because Al Pastor comes from Middle Eastern influence. So the greatest taco on earth was born out of – at least at one point, inauthenticity. And I love that. I think like it's like, look, it's like like uh, dogs that are mixed breeds generally are healthier than purebreds. You know what I'm saying? And it's like I don't think that these things should be um, – I, I understand that uh, history is important and things need to be well-documented and well-understood, and, and I think appropriation is wrong. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I feel like 
looking at all these things is, is incredibly interesting. There's fluidity in culture. Totally. Obviously, there's immigration, there's migration. It affects the way we eat. I wanted to hear a little bit more about what you're cooking at the new location of El Pastor that is like not Mexican. Straight up, you look at it like it's not Mexican. There's some cool yeah. stuff on the menu. Um, so we we started off like the first El Pastor. It was, you know... I had it in my head we were just going to serve one taco and be done with it. In That's, the East Village? Yeah. It used to be like my favorite shitty sushi spot in the East Village. That sushi was, Lounge. Sushi yeah, Lounge, it man. Paid, it was painted school bus yellow. I loved it. Avenue A, right by my old apartment. I love that place. <laughs> I had to work really hard to get all that yellow paint off. <laughs> it's a great. It's still open. It's a beautiful place. Yeah. Um, so we, my dream was to open with one taco. Like I, I think In-N-Out Burger is the greatest restaurant on earth. If you can get away with serving one thing, and that's my dream. We tried to open that way and that didn't work one what do you mean i don't eat pork or i'm a vegetarian or what the hell's al pastor you got those questions so i was like all right so we added six tacos so now we had a little bar with six tacos on the menu and that became incredibly boring very quickly and that plus people were treating it like a bar so like everything else i just tried to start to intellectualize well what is bar food or what is that sort of lowbrow hedonism that um, you touch upon when you're drunk or stoned or, or whatever. So we started looking at mozzarella sticks and, and you know, chicken nuggets and all these sort of Jalapeno things. Jalapeno poppers. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but then we tried to um, uh, intelligently Mexicanize them. So we didn't think about it as we're cooking Mexican food. We thought about we're cooking American food with our pantry, mm-hmm. which actually happens to be predominantly Mexican. Um Nothing's willy-nilly, so the Middle Eastern stuff came in by way of Al Pastor. The Chinese-American stuff, like we have lobster rangoon on that menu now. We have like pork fried rice, but the pork fried rice is made with our Al Pastor meat. Um, That came from, again, I associate Al Pastor with pineapple. I associate pineapple with tropical and tiki. And there was like a Chinese-American restaurant I grew up with as a kid in Lemonster, Massachusetts, where it was like... You know, lounge band, lounge cover band, poo-poo platters, scorpion yeah. bowls, crab rangoon. So in that way, we inject it. It's not willy-nilly. You know what I mean? Oh, it it has to be a personal mind-mapped thing. Well, I, you also write about uh, the the first creative instinct. You use free association when mm-hmm. you're thinking about dishes. This is what you're saying. Like you just you think about memory. You think about what's in front of you in your pantry. Give me some other dishes that you've done through free association. I mean – Veritably, all of them. Like sometimes yeah. it's a, it starts with a need. So like I mean, to, like we have a chopped cabbage salad on the menu at Empeon in Midtown, and that came from a place of like, well, that's going to be a it's Midtown, so it's going to be a huge lunch thing. And salads are important to Americans at lunch. They make mm-hmm. them feel safe. They need to know that they're walking into a even if they don't order the salad. Yeah, they need to know yeah. they're walking into a place where they could leave nourished and feeling And you alert. kill it at lunch at Madison. I've been it's so there. Busy. It's just a great spot in a wasteland of bad restaurants. I mean, so, so if I associate with Midtown as the land of steak tartare and Caesar salad, yeah. I was like, well, we're never going to do a Caesar salad, but what can we do? Yeah. So we made a salad and it, it was all about the dressing where I was like, well, let's make a vegan, a creamy vegan Caesar salad dressing. And we've all read about like vegan mayonnaise and how they use chickpea cooking liquid. Yep. But I was like, all right, in Mexico, there's these dried fava beans where I was like, if I cook those, will the liquid that I cook those with be able to yield the same vegan the aquafaba? Yeah. yeah. Could you do it with Mexican fava beans? Yeah. And the answer was yes. And then 
if it's a Caesar salad inspired thing via Midtown, well, it needs its croutons. And those same fava beans are like fried and have chili powder on them. That's a classic Mexican street snack. So you see what you have is not actually Mexican at all. You couldn't find it mm-hmm. in any Mexican literature or cookbooks or anything. But it's it's that Venn diagram of mm-hmm. what are we inspired by? What does the customer need? Where are we cooking? And what do they want? So it's all yeah. sort of very bad. smart. No, I, I think it's a very uh, astute way of running an operation um, because you've got creative control, but you also are making money because making money means serving a clientele who wants that salad, right? It, it, I, it's I, a balance, right? I think, yes. I think that oftentimes chefs think that creativity or servicing their own ego and the idea of making people happy are concepts in diametric opposition. And I don't believe that. No. I think the win-win, it's that Venn diagram, it's that little pinpoint where it's, here is a dish that is a representation of myself and my philosophy, and people love the shit out of it. Now it's their new favorite dish. That's the real win. <laughs> it's so true. Let's talk about the avocado dessert. I, you mentioned it, but I want to drill into that, because that is okay. one of those dishes, because it is so delicious. Like it, it could be a, It could look like a Klondike bar, and it would... It would be just so delicious, but of course it doesn't look like a Klondike bar. Well, that, that that's when you start to get into, again, back into pastry as fashion, how things look matters so, so much. Now, I could make that— Describe what it is it's first. Like, look, at the end of the day, it's a Meyer lemon parfait with avocado puree in it. Um, I could put that in a shot glass and serve it to you, and it would taste exactly the same. What we've actually done is formed it in a way where it's actually mimetic— of an avocado that you cut in half through the skin and remove the pit. It's such a it's an illusion, right? I mean, it, it's so cool, right? And but again, it's like that's what like with pastry. To me, those are the best desserts. Oh, Whereas, yeah. like when I eat a steak, I expect my steak to still look like a steak. You don't enjoy the same level or depth of manipulation mm-hmm. that you can enjoy in, in the sweet world. Yeah, uh, you wrote about. Uh... On Instagram again, because I, I just love going through Instagram. It's fun. Um, you made a fried chicken sandwich because I want to fit in. Ha ha. I love that. D- explain what that you meant by that, because you're so well, right. I'm, I, I have pretty deadpan, sarcastic humor. I'm from Massachusetts, where I think sarcasm yeah. is kind of a high art form. Um, and I was kind of uh, subtly quoting uh, Patrick Bates from American Psycho. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was funny. Like, we made a fried chicken sandwich, and I'm like, oh, I'm the last one of the party. It's like I feel like every chef has tried to stake their claim on yeah. their fried chicken sandwich. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm way late, but I want to, I want to fit in. I want to yeah. be like the rest of the guys. So what was it? Is it what's the sandwich? Is it is it pretty classic? It's uh, it's Martin's potato roll. Yeah. Uh, we well, use we put we put tomb on it, which is like this Middle Eastern garlic mayonnaise made without eggs. Um, also labna. The chicken is a uh, it's a chicken thigh that we um, brine in water that has chicken bouillon cubes marinated in it. Oh, yeah. So we kind of have that sort of like dirty fake chicken flavor about it. You're like um, you're like boosting the chicken niness of exactly. it, like chicken of the sea biscuits, exactly. chicken biscuits. Yeah, cornflake crust, raw oh. cucumbers, and dill. It's gonna. I think it might take fuku to uh, to the mat. Sounds like a good sandwich. I'm not gonna go there. Uh, I'm, I'm not gonna I didn't go take there. the bait. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, every, I'll love, I'll love for David Chang's sandwich. Your sandwich. Dave's a friend, and I, think yeah, he, I think he's a genius. Yeah, I won't talk about that bullshit fast food restaurant that we we talk yeah, too much yeah, about. Yeah. Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about your your history here. You moved to New York, um, and you know, you it was at a time. 
when our restaurant seems much different. You know, mm-hmm. it was a very different um, New York. So tell me about when you moved here. What were some of the the places you, you were you were working in Boston, right? And you you moved down here to New York, Chica- Chicago, actually. Oh, you were at Alinea then. I'm yeah. sorry, I'm messing yeah. up your timeline. I apologize. So you moved from Alinea. Um, so what were some of the places that you were going to? And some of the chefs that you're looking up to at that moment. I mean, I honestly came in not knowing anything about New York, and I really didn't. I wasn't exploring any options. I wrote a letter to Wiley Dufresne, and I said, please, I want to work for you. Mm-hmm. And and Sam Mason left, so I got hired. And that was my like that was actually my only ever job in, in New York City. At WD-50, yeah. listener, uh, you can read all about it. But uh, if you don't know about WD-50, it was a pretty establishment place. Yeah. Establishment punk, man. It was it was a pretty magical place in that, like, I mean, my exposure to meeting one of the things that really um, immediately impressed me about New York City was the sense of community that the chefs have here. It's a big city, um, but again, it's not to knock any other city. But I never mm-hmm. felt this sense of everyone knows everybody and everyone's friends in Boston or Chicago like I do here. Um, and WD Fifty was kind of the place where it's like. Wiley's a chef's chef. You know, chefs go and eat his food because they want to see what he's up to mm-hmm. and what new trick he pulled off. So it was a really exciting time for me. And I, I thought it was a really great introduction for me to New York. Yeah. What was the wildest night at WD-50? Take me back to something that Gee, crazy. I, I don't remember to the point of blocking <laughs> out, I, blacking <laughs> out. I, I could say that whatever the craziest night was, Rocio Sanchez was definitely by my side. Yeah. You know, she was my sous chef and uh-huh. partner in crime and... Uh, she's totally wild and really fun yeah. to party with. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. Rocio went on to work at Noma and then open up restaurants in Copenhagen. Yeah. yeah, she's she's my favorite. Very cool person. But tell me, like in that era when you just moved here, who are who are like the important chefs of the moment? Who are you looking up to? I mean, I always kind of looked at, like, I mean, I was always most drawn to the, I, I suppose, the titans of, of New York. Like, I was always really fascinated with. Um, you know, Daniel Ballou, Eric Repair, Jean-Georges, like those were the three. Because again, what's so fascinating about them is that they're they're so successful and their food is so loved and their restaurants are such institutions to the point where if they were to go away, New York would not be okay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also like that they all are outsiders. You know, I mean, they've all, you know, moved here and and and, and made something of it. And I just think that's super inspirational. You wrote a really cool cookbook, you and Jordana Rothman, in 2015 called yes. Tacos. Uh, it was a fantastic book. I had a lot of great writing in it. As as you know, I'm a fan of your writing. I wanted to talk a little bit about home cooking, um, about making Mexican food at home, making tacos at home. But I wanted to specifically, specifically ask you about Maggie. Who good at Maggie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah because or you, Magi, as it... Is that how it's pronounced? I in, in, in Mexico, it would be Hugo de Maggi, yeah. but it's not from Mexico. Yeah. It's, a Swiss, it's a Swiss project. Right. Magi, Magi seasoning. Magi seasoning. Um, we've written about Magi seasoning on taste, and, and we've written about MSG and some other additives and how it's important in all cultures. But I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about um, buying a bottle of, of Magi and, and cooking with it's it. It's always in my kitchen. For people who don't know, I mean, it's like if you're okay with soy sauce, soy sauce is made from fermented soybeans. Mm-hmm. Uh, Magi is made from fermented wheat. Mm-hmm. So it's a soy sauce, if you will, or a garum made, made from wheat. Um, it, I, I've ha- I have, um, you know, uh, Chinese friends, Japanese friends, like, who kind of like call it white boy soy sauce. Uh, so I, th- I always thought that was a cute name. It's used a lot um, in, in Mexican cooking. 
Um, I don't see why people would have a problem with it um, if they oh, – no. with soy sauce. I think if it's a perception thing. Um, but it's awesome. I mean we we put it in everything to – like it's in, a, it's in my pickleback shots at Al Pastor. <laughs> so you're, you're, you're using it to marinate. You're using it also as a seasoning sauce, right? Totally. Yeah, it's totally. all I, utility, right? Yeah, if you make a – like if you make like a beef stew or something like this, yeah. something that's like dark meaty flavors and you add like yeah. a teaspoon of that, it just sort of takes it to the next level. Um, do you feel uh, home cooks should make their own tortillas? I think everyone should try yeah. because even even if like I get happy when people send me pictures that they're making tortillas at home from our book, and even if the tortillas are awful and that they're too thick or the edges are jagged or whatever, mm-hmm. that's still better than buying what you could buy at a grocery store. It, it, it just it's just better. Like yeah. the, the fresh product made wrong or less skillfully is still infinitely better than a, a machined. GMO yeah. tortilla that has uh, methyl cellulose and guar gum in it. It's just better, you know. Um, so I think everyone should try, but I don't think everyone should also be deterred from making tacos at home if they don't want to try. I mean, not everyone in Mexico makes tortillas at home. Not actually very few taquerias in Mexico actually just make their tortillas from scratch. On I mean, Mezteca, like people use instant masa, right? In Mexico, yeah. often, I mean, yeah, uh, more often than than they should. It's it's kind of sad, but like, and I get like this is a surprising thing. It never took off, and I I mean, I've tried making people aware of it, but it's like if you go to any of my restaurants, if you go to Al Pastor in the East Village, we will happily sell you mm-hmm. great tortillas like for cheap. You know, yeah. Like, what's the price? I'm curious. Like, what would you sell? Here, for? Here's here's a pound for two bucks. Yeah, you know, just give them away. Who cares? Like, Dude, that's listener. Ch- check that out. That's a good. So tip. yeah, if I mean, if people just wanted to take 32 tortillas home so they could make good enchiladas or good tacos, like that makes me happy. And that's not a. Yeah. We're not making any profit on that. That's not a no. business. I just I like it as an amenity to the community. It's a really good call, and I think you, that probably that ethic would would translate to many cities. I feel like a lot of chefs would sell you a tortilla if you came in and, and wanted. To. Sure. I mean, the only way you're ever going to really make a business out of selling tortillas is if you were in a market that has such a you need to open in a demographic of tortilla eaters yeah that's basically it but go but go to a rest check it out go to a restaurant and see if they'll sell you one i think it's a great tip i think sometimes it is a little challenging to to make a tortilla at home but you want to have that fresh product yeah you need high heat and yes like fresh masa is it's a pain it's fresh masa that's the challenge but i i I think i've tried doing it once it's it's a great it just gives you much more appreciation for totally good tortillas i wanted to ask you about a about books, it's been several years. You know, it's almost five years since your your last book came out. So tell me, what's your next book dream project? Uh, I'd like to do a book about desserts next. Nice. Yeah, um, I, I just think it's something that I have opinions on that are are unique to me, mm-hmm. and I feel like it would be a shame not to to document that. Uh, so, but as you know, like books are a metric ton of work. Yeah. Um, but I, I would hope to have a proposal done. This year, oh cool! Yeah, wow, hopefully, and we're, we're ticking away. We're already in February. So, yeah, um, there are a lot of dessert books out there. How there, is yours different? Um, I'm just curious. I I I, I want to read this book. I mean, this book would be very different. Like our book about tacos, the point of it was we were really trying to draw in the home cook, and we were really just trying to say, hey, make these things at home. And that that single that lighthearted single subject cookbook was actually a Trojan horse for us to inject a lot of our opinions about socioeconomics and how we look at Mexico and mm-hmm. how we look at authenticity and all mm-hmm. that. And it, some black metal references. Oh, yeah. 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 Which yeah. is great. Yeah. There's always, there's always, it's always everything and Satan at the end of the day. 
if, if no, you're dealing with me. It's, you should check out this book. It's it really <laughs> has a lot of these like, like these like little uh, Easter eggs like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I tried to have like actual proper. Um, uh, there's certain inks that you can get that don't become visible unless you emulate the page, um, but that kind of got swatted away as a superfluous expense. Yeah, um, the guys at Random House, Penguin Random House, don't really love that. My Francis Lamb, my editor, was in my corner on that. For the record, he wanted it to happen. Um, Yo, he he'll back anyone. Yeah, if he they wanted have a cool it idea. to happen. Yeah. Um. But yeah, a book about desserts would actually be a lot more of a coffee table book. It wouldn't yeah. be about hey, make these things at home. It'd be like look at look how far you can push these ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, I, I want to get it done. So is Empayon gonna gonna expand? I mean, you've got three locations now. Four. Four locations. Sorry. Four. No, four. We just opened the second Alpas store. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah. About nine days ago. Right. Uh. Yeah, we're we're opening another. Taqueria, nice this year, right. or, or at least we intend in, to in New York City. Yeah, I, I don't, I, 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 I don't take leaving New York City lightly. I, I really don't. I, I think that chefs um, often have this, just humanity. We have this, mm-hmm. this grass is always greener mentality of yeah. like, guess oh, what? Journalists have that too. Oh, uh, it's like, <laughs> right. It's like, oh, it must be rent must be so much cheaper there, or yeah. oh, like, screw restaurants, it's a hard business, let's get into grocery stores, or let's do a yeah. quick... I believe all businesses are hard, and yeah, unless you've really. lived in it, you don't even know... You don't know yet. You Like, you have to live it. So, with with New York, I, I, I want to grow in New York to the point of, if we do one more, they're sick of us, and we have mm. to leave. Otherwise, I think you should... I should stay here. Maximize it, yeah. And then in addition to that, where do you go? I, I think there's something really um, perverse and weird about the idea of, like, I'm just going to open here. It, like, how do you fit into the community? Yeah. What What are you really going to bring that that community doesn't have? And if it's the idea of, like, well, I do it better or, like, it, I, I, that's never sat right with me. Mm-mm. And that's not just an L.A. London thing because mm-hmm. those cities have very fierce identities like New York City. Mm-hmm. It's a Philadelphia thing. It's mm-hmm. a Charleston, South Carolina. It's it's all it's all the cities. Yeah. I, I think you need to go into it, it. Like there needs to be a community that needs something that only you can do. And if you really think about it, based on that metric of judgment, that's tricky. Yeah, that's tricky. Yeah, you want to pick your battles. I mean, it's always an uphill battle being the outsider coming into a community. It's such a well said point. Not said enough about expansion. I mean, are there cities that you enjoy just going to that you just feel like you could spend some time there? I'm a I'm a I would love to open in Los Angeles for selfish reasons. Oh, sure. Because I love being there. Yeah. Um, I would love to open in London for selfish reasons. I, I just I'm fascinated cool. by that city. But again, those aren't good reasons to open. a. <laughs> it's way easier to just take a vac- mm. like take many vacation yeah. there as you want. Um, I'm not saying we won't do it. We have yeah. those we have those um, ambitions and aspirations. I just um, I I don't think I'm growing slow. But I, I do know that I'm not going as fast as a clip of uh, as some of my competitors. But I don't. I just. Um, I'm just worried about dilution, sure. like dilution of self. Yeah, and your time, and you have a young family, so you want to make sure you yeah. balance that stuff. I mean, let's talk about LA tacos in general. I mean, are there places that you enjoy going to, neighborhoods or even restaurants in particular? I I don't know enough about it. Sure. Um, Bill Esparza, um, who he runs the yeah. blog uh, Street Gourmet LA, and now he does like freelance work. He writes for Eater. He writes for mm-hmm. a bunch of different things. Um, I'm friendly with him, which I'm thankful for, and I would love for him to like. He just seems to um, sometimes the, the things that he exposes yeah. makes me realize. Well, like even many other writers are just barely scratching the surface of the complexity that is Los Angeles, and he's just primarily focused on 
um, mainly Mexican or one genre. I mean, yeah. he definitely touches on the entire Latino world. Um, so it's just so fascinating to me. And it's like, I want to dig into that. Um, I, like Empeon is changing in that, like I'm, I'm kind of over, it sounds weird, like, cause we're, we're not going to stop doing it, but creatively speaking, I'm kind of over the idea of serving tacos in restaurants. Sure. You know what I mean, like we've made a name doing it and yeah. it's, um, we're, we're, like I said, we're opening another Empeon Taqueria yeah. and we're going to do that, but we're starting to look at Empeon as um, a, creative a, a way of looking at things, yeah, yeah, not a taco it. margarita brand. So, but the only way I can't talk about that and make like I can talk about it all I want, I have to start opening some restaurants that prove that that's our stance. Mm-hmm. Well, I think your changes at the new El Pastor is kind of moving in that direction, I'll say, just yeah. objectively. Um, I love your tacos, though. I'd love to eat them. <laughs> I love them, too. Thank you. Um, again, it's one of those things of, like, one, one of the things that's exciting about opening a new version of the same restaurant. Yeah. Think about it. If, like, if you had an iPhone and at one point the button was here and then you bought a new iPhone and the button was here, it's like you can't have everyone hand in their phone and ask to move the button, but you can make a new phone and see how people react to it. So the new Al Pastor, like, and it's not. I'm incredibly proud of the first one, but there are some upgrades to the second one um, that I see as upgrades. Mm -hmm. But again, it's like if you listen to George Lucas talk about Star Wars, he thinks he's upgraded the past episodes, and some people agree, and some people are fucking bullshit about Mm -hmm. it. Like they're they're pissed off. Um, So again, it's that you got to be careful. You know what I mean? It's like it's your ego, it's your vision, it's what you think. And you probably do know best, but simultaneously, it, without the the clients w- and without their love of what you do, you do have nothing. You have nothing. Way to bring the Apple uh, analogy into the game. I like that. Yeah. Alex yeah, Beck, it, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Here's Matt asking Deb Perlman a question from a listener. Hey, Deb, we have a reader question here. Your Twitter bio describes you as gluten-full, which I think is amazing. I love that. Top, what are your top three gluten-full foods? Oh, my God. It's like, don't make me pick a favorite child. Um, definitely a good, um, a good sourdough bread. You have to, like a good, I mean, a life without sourdough is just not one I want to participate. I understand that there's a medical condition, but it would definitely make me sad. Second would have to be a beignet, like a really good fresh yeasted donut that's like crispy and not even too sweet, just like a little bit of sugar on the outside would be like a top five food for me. Um, And then I feel like I want to go like like a bowl of Dan Dan noodles. I mean, I know you could probably make it with rice noodles, but they're usually made with wheat noodles. And some of that stretchy heaviness of it is part of the appeal with, like, the crispy chili oil and stuff. So I just think – I think I'd be really those sad so about good. those things. I just want to follow up on the beignet because I always get a little intimidated about making donuts at home. It, but I think the yeasted ones are easier. I think the hardest thing – well, especially with cake ones is getting them to cook inside – before yeah exactly they get dark too fast it's very hard to keep the oil temperature even but i think that the yeast ones sort of cook a little bit faster because they're a little airier and it's a little easier we are not even discussing baked donuts those are not donuts Uh, not 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 in my watch yeah well thank you so much cake yeah that that really that makes a lot of sense thank you so much deb 
The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>